Well, last week we began a series in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles today. And as we were going through 1 Timothy chapter 3, we saw that this is a list of biblical guidelines, qualifications that God has given to those who will serve as leaders in the church. And as we were beginning to look through the list, I encouraged each of us to look at this list and the characteristics there, not only to know what it is that are the qualifications leaders are to possess, but also because these are marks of maturity. So they apply to every one of us who are here as a believer in Jesus Christ. Every man and woman who is a follower of Christ should, should see these characteristics in their life as things that we aspire to, to grow in our walk with God. So as we continue looking today at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, I want you to again look at these things we're going to be talking about today and say, does this describe me? If this is a characteristic that doesn't describe you, uh, ask God to help you to grow in these areas of your life. Now, the first characteristic that we're coming to, the next one in the list where we left off last time in 1 Timothy 3.2, is that the, the church leader, the husband of one wife, is what it says in 1 Timothy 3.2, again in verse 12. I'm not sure what just happened to the slide there. Can you... Uh, Put our slides back up. So and uh, the husband of one wife is what we find here in 1 Timothy 3.2. Now, this is used in, again, it shows up in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 6. It's, it's used as a qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3.12 for deacons. Now, a literal translation of this, as you see there, is that it is a one-woman man. This is how the Greek text reads, a one-woman man. Now, as we're looking at this, I want to remind you that last week we talked about the different offices of leaders in the church. There are elders, there are deacons, and there are deaconesses. And we saw that women can serve in the role of deaconesses. Well, one of the things that the Bible talks about is the role of an elder, we believe, here at Wayside Chapel is taught that it is for men only as an elder. Now, one of the places we find that is here in this passage is we're looking at this, uh, what the Greek text says for, for an elder here. You'll notice it doesn't say the partner or mate of one spouse. And as you look at the original text, it doesn't, say, it doesn't use words like anthropos, which is a, a Greek word that can be used to describe men and women. Rather, all of the, the terminology, all of the genders in this qualification are exclusively masculine. Uh, so this is an area we believe is limited to, the, to men. Now, as we're talking about what it means to be the husband of one wife, a logical question is, does this mean that a man must be married in order to serve as a leader in the church? Does a man have to be married to be an elder? Now, if you're going to take this characteristic there as saying that this is something that has to be true in the life of, of any man, in other words, both married or single, I'll talk more about what that means here in a moment, then we need to look at the parallel list in Titus 1.6 because there it says, if any man is above reproach, that's a qualification we talked about last week, the husband of one wife, what we're looking at now, you'll notice the next qualification there is having children who believe. So if you're going to be consistent in your interpretation, whenever you interpret things in the scripture, you need to look at the, the passage, the context, as well as then see if there's anything else in scripture said. So if you're going to be consistent and say you have to be married in order to be a, an elder, well, then you're also saying you have to have a child. 
in order to be an elder. In fact, not just one, but multiple children, at least two, because children here is in the plural form. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to have children who believed or your kids being discipled in your home. So we'll leave that for next time. But I just want you to see here that this is not saying that you have to be married in order to serve as an elder. What it is saying is that if A is true, that is, you're married, then B, you need to be the husband of one wife. Or in the case of kids, if you have kids, A, if that's true, then B, they need to be those who are believers that you're discipling. And so the qualification here is not saying that a man has to be married. It's saying that if he is married, he has to be marked by being a one-woman man. Another place we can go to to see that is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. There the apostle Paul, you'll remember Paul was called to be an apostle in the church in the road to Damascus encounter with Jesus Christ. And Paul was not married. Uh, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, I wish that all men were even as I myself am, referring to his singleness. So what this is saying is not that you have to be a leader, I mean married in order to be a leader in the church. Paul said he wished that all people were single, not because he was against marriage, but because he said it allowed him to serve the Lord in an unencumbered way. He didn't have the responsibilities of taking care of a family that those who were married did, and it freed Paul up to serve fully devoted to, his, to serving his Savior. So someone who is single can be qualified to serve, but all the other characteristics we're talking about uh, are in in view here. Now, what if somebody is married? What does this mean to be a one-woman man? Well, there are three ways that this is interpreted. So we're going to be talking about three different views here. And one view uh, says on the extreme that if you're a married person, You are never, ever to be remarried again. And what that means is if I, as a husband, and my wife were to die, and I become a widower, it says I am not allowed to remarry ever again. Because if I remarried another woman after the death of my spouse, then I would not be qualified to serve as a leader. Now, is that what the scriptures are teaching? As you continue reading through the book of 1 Timothy, you'll find that as you get to 1 Timothy 5.14, there Paul says, I want younger widows to get married. So these are women whose husbands have died, and the Apostle Paul says God is directing uh, that these are not women who are to remain unmarried the rest of their life. As you look at Romans chapter 7, verse 2, there it says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. And so that's saying the covenant relationship till death do us part was fulfilled. And while both of those passages are speaking of widows, the same application is to widowers, men who have lost their wife. So the qualification is not restricting a man who has lost his wife to death from ever remarrying again. Now, on the other end of the scale is the view that says you can have uh, as many wives as you want, as long as you have them one at a time. Meaning you could have a wife, divorce her, get a new wife, divorce her, and on and on the list goes, as long as you don't practice polygamy. You should remember, Paul was writing in the first century. And what was happening there is there was polygamy in the church. There, were, there was abuses of God's covenant design, and there were people who had more than one spouse. And so this view is saying that the restriction was just on having more than one spouse at a time. But that's not in view either. Because as you look at what God's word says, the rest of the Bible, speaking of marriage, you have passages like Malachi 2.16 where God says, I hate divorce. God doesn't hate the divorce person. He hates divorce and what it does. 
And what he says is marriage is not a disposable covenant. This isn't you have a person, you set them aside, get a new one and get a next one and on and on. Uh, we find that in passages like Matthew 19, 6, where it says they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, in a perfect world, all marriages would last until the, the death of a spouse. But we live in a broken world. We live in a sin-cursed world. We, we have men and women with free will who sometimes choose to go against God's revealed will. And so divorces, unfortunately, happen even in the Christian church. And so if that's the case, what does this mean to be a one-woman man? Well, that takes us to the third view as to what happens if a man has divorced. Uh, Is this saying that they are never able to serve as an elder or a deacon? Or if a woman has divorced, that she is never able to serve as a deaconess? Well, the easiest thing to say here would be we're going to take the ultra-conservative view that says if there's ever been a divorce for any reason or any situation in somebody's life that they are not qualified to serve as a leader in the church. But again, is that what the scriptures are teaching? As you look at the totality of the Bible, the Bible says that there is only one unforgivable sin. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32, and in Mark 3, 22 through 30, it says the one unforgivable sin is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And theologians will tell you that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was equated uh, to what the Pharisees and other religious leaders of the day were doing with Jesus, where they rejected Jesus as God, where they said, you're not the promised Messiah. And they said, the work that you are doing is done through Satan. And so they attributed the work of God to the devil, and that was blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, of God's empowerment and what God was doing. Now, I mention that here because what happens is sometimes Christians, well-meaning believers, will take the sin of divorce and they will put it in the category of the unforgivable sin. They will say that if a man has divorced his wife or been divorced by his wife, that this person is set aside and never qualified to serve again. Now, in terms of being consistent, remember, this is one of many characteristics that are listed as a qualified role for somebody to serve in a leader in a church position. There are other things we're going to talk about next week, like being drunk. So what if a man has ever been drunk? Does that mean that he is never qualified to serve ever again as a leader? The Bible speaks against being a gossip. So does that mean if somebody has has been a gossip in their life that they are not qualified to ever serve as a leader? What about uh, any of the other characteristics we're looking at? Is God saying that it's a one and done with your life, that if you ever violate a characteristic, a qualification here, that you're never able to serve? Well, the answer, of course, is no. We talked last time in 1 John 1, 9 that God says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, please hear this correctly. I'm not minimizing the issue of divorce. I'm not just saying, well, that's just kind of it happened and we, we just move on like it never happened. That's not at all what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is looking at the totality of all that is said. And one of the reasons this qualification is so important is you'll remember there's another qualification in the list that we saw last week as we read through the whole passage that the, the man is to be a good manager of his home. And if there's been a divorce in the home... Now, I know that no marriage ever ends because fully the responsibility of one person. There's a joke that says, uh, you know, in a marriage, uh, everybody has a problem and they're married to each other. So you have this situation where the husband and the wife are often both at fault in whatever happens, some more than others. But this is not saying 
that uh, the person is without fault. So you have a divorced situation, but what if the person is the aggrieved party in the divorce? Are they set aside? Or, or what about the biblical qualifications and other things uh, that are in view we're about to talk about? Another qualification that's in view here is 1 Timothy 3.2. It says a leader must be above reproach. So if the home has fallen apart, people can, can legitimately question what kind of manager in the home is this man? And then the other is the reputation. Based upon what the, the cause of the divorce was, uh, what does this say about the person? And we talked last time about why the reputation is so important because it reflects negatively upon our Savior Jesus Christ and it can reflect negatively upon the church that the leader leads. There's a man by the name of Jay Adams. He wrote a book called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. And he says in his book, the circumstances of a man's divorce and, and or remarriage may be such that a person for years afterwards, perhaps even for the remainder of his life, would fail to qualify because of the bad reputation that he bears as a result. On the other hand, his lifestyle subsequently may be such that God has changed his reputation. Moreover, he may not have sinned at all in obtaining a divorce if it was granted on biblical grounds. He goes on to say, since each case differs, it is the job of the existing officers in each instance to determine whether or not a given individual fits those qualifications. Now, what does Adams mean when he says biblical grounds for divorce? Well, we could spend an entire sermon just on biblical grounds for divorce. In fact, we've already done that, so that's the good news. I'm not going to have to go back and, and re-preach everything that the Bible says about divorce because back when we were going through our series in the Gospel of Luke, when we came to Luke chapter 16, verse 18, you'll remember we talked about divorce there. In September of last year, we spent an entire message looking at what does God say about divorce and the possibility of remarriage. So rather than go back and re-preach that entire message, what I've done is I've asked our tech team to link this message to this one. So when you go to the sermon section of our website at waysidechapel.org, you will find this sermon after this new message is uploaded uh, together so that you can go back and listen to this if you miss that sermon or you need a review of what are the biblical grounds for remarriage. Because if God says there has been a divorce and his word allows a remarriage of a person, then again, here at Wayside Chapel, we believe that what God's word allows is a man who has been previously married, if he fits the biblical grounds, God's guidelines that were given in his word, then he is not disqualified from serving as an elder. But we don't take it lightly. We look at the situation, we go back and we explore the totality of the situation. In some instances, even talking to the ex-spouse, if that has been uh, something that has happened, because the Bible tells us whoever pleads his case first is believed right till another comes along and examines him, is what it says in the book of Proverbs, meaning there are two sides to every story. So if we're ever faced with a situation where somebody has had a previous divorce, we look at the totality. We look at the background. We talk to those to determine, does this person meet the biblical grounds of a divorce and thus is not disqualified from serving again as a leader? Now, after you listen to that sermon this week, if you want to come back next week and talk to me, I'll be here at the front and I can answer any questions you may have regarding what you, you listen to. But... I'm, I'm going to leave it at this at this point so that you can review that sermon and then you can come back with questions if you have them. 
Now, as we talked about last week, you don't have to have an official title in order to function as a leader. If you're a man or a woman who has a divorce in your background where you're saying, but Roger, I've been disqualified. I didn't have biblical grounds, and therefore I'm not qualified to serve as a leader. I want to remind you of two things we talked about last week. Number one is you do not have to have a title in order to serve the Lord in the church. All you have to have is a towel, as we saw last week. The role of a leader is to be a servant to the Lord and to the body. And so if you're somebody who says, I'm not qualified to hold the office of a church leader because of of this characteristic, it doesn't mean God is done with you. You still have the capacity to serve the Lord fully. In fact, the Bible says every one of us as a Christian is part of the priesthood of believers. So you should be serving the Lord and wherever you are in whatever capacity you, you have. You don't have to have the title to do the ministry. And the second thing I want to remind you of is what we saw last week, is that God hits the reset button when we come to him, when we confess our sins. God is able to recommission us. God is able to restore us. We saw that with the life of Peter in a previous message as well, where failure was not final. After he denied the Lord three times, Peter was still restored and used as he came back to his walk with Christ. And so God is not done with you. Do not sit on the sidelines. You are not damaged goods where God is done with you. You are able to be used in in ways where even your past hurts and mistakes can be used to minister to others. The Bible tells us to comfort one another with the comfort we've received in the book of Corinthians. We are to use those past hurts in ways to minister to others as well. Now, the next characteristic we come to is that a leader is to be temperate. This word means not mixed with wine, uh, literally to be sober or clear-headed. Now, next week we're going to be coming back and looking at the question as to whether or not a Christian can drink. So we're not going to spend any more time on this today because we're going to cover this more in depth next week. But what this qualification is saying is that we are to be free from the influence of anything other than the Holy Spirit. We're to be free from anything other than the influence of the Holy Spirit. You can have addictive behaviors in your life. You can have things in your your life that control you. We're going to be talking about anger here in a moment. And so there can be factors or or, or things that define who you are as a person in the way that you act. Our identity is in Christ. That's what defines us. But our behaviors can be controlling. And what this qualification of being temperate is, is we're saying we allow the Holy Spirit to control us. First uh, Corinthians 3.16 tells us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? And so the, the characteristic here is saying, is it, is it God who controls you? Is it his Spirit that, that leads you? Uh, so this, this is what this qualification is talking about. Now the next one is one that unfortunately controls a lot of people. But it's not to be present in us as Christians, and certainly not as a church leader. This qualification is found in Titus 1.7, and it says a leader is not to be quick-tempered. This word means inclined to anger. Um, Now, all of us get angry. This isn't saying that if you've ever been mad as a person that you're disqualified from serving as a leader. In fact, it may surprise you if you're not aware of it to hear that the Bible actually commands us to be mad, to be angry. In Ephesians 4.26, it says, be angry, but do not sin. There's a righteous anger. There are times to be angry, to have our heart broken by the things that break the heart of God, and to have a righteous response to the wrong things. But what this is saying is there can also be a wrong response. 
That word that is used for anger in Ephesians 4.26 is not the one that is found here in Titus 1.7. The Greek word that is used here in Titus 1.7 describes the type of person who is irritable all the time. Uh, Do you know anybody like that? Now, don't poke the person next to you if they're the irritable one, okay, because we don't want to have that explosion uh, happen here in church, right? Uh, that's the Greek word thumos. It means it's explosive anger. We don't want to see that happen this morning. So that's you. Um, but this word is describing a person who's set off by a spark, right? Something happens and they, they just go nuclear all of a sudden in, in their response. And anyone who serves in a position of leadership knows that you serve in the role of a lightning rod. Criticism comes your way. And if you're the type of person that is inclined to anger and and comes with this response of of anger, uh, then you are not qualified to serve in a leadership role. Many have heard of Charles H. Spurgeon. He was a famous English pastor from the past. And he had a lesser-known contemporary of his who was a friend and fellow pastor by the name of Dr. Newman Hall. And Hall, in his day, had written a book titled, Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And this book actually became very popular. It it moved into the best-selling ranks. It was quoted a lot. People were talking about it. And because of that, there was another pastor who got very jealous of Hall because he's like, well, why does everybody think Hall's so great in in his work? And so this guy started to criticize Hall openly. In fact, he would write op-ed pieces. It was being republished in a paper, what he was saying about Hall. And this one particular article Uh, took a lot of traction and was being republished. And Hall, at first, endured the criticism patiently. But as this article gained popularity and was circulated more and more, Hall decided to defend himself and write a response. And so he writes this protest piece, and it was full of retaliatory remarks. He slung as much mud back as this one who had attacked him. And thankfully, Hall went to his friend Spurgeon and said, I'd like you to read this. And tell me what you think of it before I send it in to be published. And Spurgeon reads through this article. And after reading his his letter, he hands it back to his friend. And and he says, it's excellent. You've addressed everything, Hall. It's sharp. It's cutting. He deserves everything that you've said. But then Spurgeon said, there's just one thing you lack. And Hall gets out his pen. Great. Okay, what, 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 what did I forget to say? And he said, under your name... Under your signature, write, author of Come to Jesus. (laughs) Write the words, author of Come to Jesus. Now, as these two godly men looked at each other, Hall smiled at his friend, and he tore the letter up in Spurgeon's presence. And so, as I said, there are times that we should be angry. There are times you want to be angry. Somebody deserves it. And in those moments where you want to respond, I want to ask yourself, would it change the way you respond if at the end of whatever it is you wrote or said, uh, you had to write the words, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian? Would that change your response? I I can tell you personally there are times that I get angry. I get mad about things. Uh, I may be in a store. I may get treated poorly. And and the, the human side of Roger wants to respond a certain way. But then I remember there are a lot of people who know I'm a pastor. And I, and I always wonder, should I write uh, underneath pastor of Wayside Chapel or follower of Jesus Christ? And that changes the way that I often respond. I call it eating crow for Christ. And it's something we all need to learn to do a little more of. 
Now, the next characteristic which are mentioned are found in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. There it says that a leader is to be prudent or sensible. And these words, the root describes somebody who doesn't act rashly. Instead, you think through your decisions. Uh, you, you don't act rashly, but you think through your decisions. We talked a moment ago about being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes you know if you would just slow down and you would think about not only what you're going to say and how you're going to say it, but what the potential response could be, then it'll change how you operate. Now, the next word we find is respectable. And this is the Greek word cosmios. And it's not related to the word cosmos. It's related to our English word cosmetics. Ever heard of cosmetics? Well, this is where we get the word cosmios. And so this word literally means with modesty. And you'll find it translated various ways in the scripture. Respectable, honorable, orderly, dignified. This, uh, this word is actually only found one other time in the Bible outside of the qualifications of a leader. And that's in 1 Timothy 2.9. And there it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now, when it comes to the way that women dress, and, and I want you to hear this clearly, guys. I'm not just talking to the ladies here. Everything I'm about to say applies to us as men as well, because as men, believe it or not, you can cause women to stumble by the way you dress. Uh, we can cause people to stumble by the words that we say. Guys are more visually stimulated, ladies, as you already know, and men, women are more auditory. They respond to our words, our flattery, the stories you tell. And as we're talking about this characteristic, it's important for us to understand that the way that we uh, act around others has impact, and it also reflects upon ourselves and our Savior, Jesus. So in terms of this idea of dressing modestly and discreetly, I, I like the words that a, a clever pundit penned one day. He said, girls, when they went out to swim, once dressed like Mother Hubbard, now they have a bolder whim, and they dress more like her cupboard. Now, you'll recall Mother Hubbard's cupboard was bare, and so that's what he's saying here. Now, as I mentioned, this isn't just talking in terms of the way that you dress, ladies or guys. But what I do want us to understand is the way that we present ourselves is a reflection on really the value that we place upon ourselves. And it's a reflection upon what we believe our identity is in Christ. A lot of times the way we dress or act is in order to attract attention or to try to raise our worth. And sometimes what we're really doing is devaluing who we are by the way we present ourselves. Uh, this was seen in a, in a story I read about Muhammad Ali. Uh, many of you have heard of Muhammad Ali. He was a famous heavyweight boxing champion. And Muhammad Ali has two daughters. And uh, he, his daughter, Hannah, tells the story of a time that she and her sister went to visit their father, Muhammad Ali. He had a, a penthouse apartment, and his daughter, Hannah, said that the chauffeur brought them to the apartment. He escorted them up, and as they walked through the door of the apartment, um, Ali jumped out to try to scare them. He said that was his practice. We always knew he was hiding behind the door, and we all played along like he scared us. And so Muhammad Ali jumps out. He scares his daughters, and they exchange hugs and kisses. And, she, and Hannah says, as my father looked at the way that, that Layla, my sister, and I were dressed, um, we could see he didn't approve of it. And he said something that I will never forget. 
He sat us down and he looked us straight in the eyes and then he said, everything that God made valuable in the world is covered up and hard to get. He says, where do you find diamonds? They're deep down in the ground, covered and protected. Where do you find pearls? They're deep down in the bottom of the ocean, covered up and protected in a, in a beautiful shell. Girls, where do you find gold? It's way down in the mine, covered over with layers and layers of rock. He says, you've got to work hard to get to them. And then he looked at us with serious eyes and he said, your body is sacred. You're far more precious than diamonds and pearls and you should be covered up too. As it relates to what we wear, society likes to say, clothes make the man, right? And yet as you read 1 Samuel 16, 7, there it tells us in God's word that God looks not as man sees. For man looks at the externals, but God looks at the heart. And this, this qualification, this, this idea of modesty, again, I don't want you to think that I'm being approved here or that God is, is being approved when he gives this characteristic because it's not. What he's saying is our outward presentation, our outward appearance is a reflection of what's inside. We see that in the scriptures. In Matthew twelve thirty four. Jesus said, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In Luke 6, 45, we're told, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. As you think in terms of this overflow of the mouth that speaks from the heart, there was a book written called Everyone's a Coach. And Ken Blanchard, in his book, tells of a time that Don Shula, Don Shula was an NFL pro uh, head coach of the past, and Shula lost his temper one day on primetime TV near an open microphone during the televised game with the Los Angeles Rams. This was back in a day where profanity was not common on uh, primetime TV. And so when these cuss words came out over the airways, it was shocking to all who heard it. And millions of viewers were surprised and shocked by Shula's explicit profanity. And in fact, uh, hundreds of letters arrived from all over the country. They wrote to the, the network and they wrote to Shula. And these letters to the network were forwarded to this coach. And, and those that wrote to his team headquarters, they expressed their disappointment of Shula. And the reason for that is he was a coach who was known for his integrity as well as his witness. And people were writing how disappointed they were that this image of who they thought Shula was had been shattered. Now, Shula could have responded as many do. He could have given excuses. He could have said, well, I didn't know the microphone was there. It was the heat of the game, and I was trying to motivate these men playing the game, and on and on. But he didn't do that. Instead, Shula was broken by what had happened. And for every person who had included a return address, Shula wrote a handwritten personal note to the person apologizing for what he had done. And he ended every letter with the words that I value your respect and I will do everything I can to earn it again. You remember last week we talked about our reputation and how it can take years to build a good reputation and minutes to lose it. And respect is that way as well. It takes a long time to build respect, but it can be lost in an instant. And as you look at how you live your life, I want you to ask yourself, are you living in a way that causes other people to respect you? Is your life one that, that you know, commands respect from others? 
Uh, I want you to think in terms of how you handle yourself uh, in a dating relationship. I have two daughters and a son. And I tell my girls and I tell my son that, you know, in a dating relationship, the person you're dating may be the man or woman that you end up marrying ultimately in life. But it could also be a person that you do not marry. And so I always say to my kids, are you, are you honoring the person you are dating by keeping them pure for their future uh, husband or, or wife? And are you keeping yourself pure for your future husband or wife? You know, are you living in a way that, that honors the other person? Are you dating with honor? If I went to where you work, would I find that people there respect you? Now, here clearly I'm not asking, are you the owner of the company? I'm not asking, are you a, a, a manager or a supervisor? You know, you can have people who work for you that do what you say because you control their livelihood. You can control their hours or their paycheck. What I'm asking is, do people respect you because of who you are, not because of your position? If, if, if your position gives you authority, your behavior is, is really what earns respect, right? As you think of this characteristic of respect, I want you to ask yourself, if you're a, 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 a parent, a father, or a mother, do your kids respect you? I'm not asking, do they fear you? I'm not asking if they do what you say because of consequences. I'm asking, do you live in a way that, that draws respect out from your kids? God wants us to live in a way where we're worthy of respect. And the way to do that is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. There Paul said, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Paul said, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. You know, the word Christian means a little Christ. We literally represent our Savior. And ask yourself, do you look like a little Christ? Are you a person who is walking in a way where, like Paul said, if you, if you walk the way I walk, you'll look like Jesus. Not perfect, but are, are you walking in a way that leads others into deeper uh, and abiding walk with God? Now, the last quality we're going to talk about today is found in 1 Timothy 3.2 and in Titus 1.8. And this word is hospitable. It says that a leader is to be hospitable. And this word literally means loving strangers. Uh, Christians in the first century were not able to go to motels like many of us do when we travel. They didn't have a lot of inns in that day. And of those that did exist, you didn't want to stay there. They were places of thieves. Uh, they were places of debauchery. There were, the food that was served there was often from the pagan temples, so it had been polluted. And there was questions about you know, what you were communicating to others if you ate it. And so as Christians, many did not ever stay in the inns, and they had to stay in the homes of other Christians as they traveled. So this characteristic of being hospitable was very important because you had lots of opportunity to show hospitality. And as Christians today, while we may not have people staying in our homes all the time like they did in the first century, we do have lots of opportunity to be hospitable here at church, in our homes and in our neighborhoods, and even the strangers we meet on the street. And if you look at this word hospitable in the dictionary, you'll find two other words near it in the dictionary. One is hospice and the other is hospital. And these two words are really intertwined with what we're talking about today. Because as you look at the definition of hospice, 
It's defined as a lodging for travelers or young persons or the underprivileged. You know, this, these are the youth hostels you find in Europe as you travel around. Uh, this, this is where this idea of a hospice comes from. And it is also further defined in our day as a place or a program designed to care for the needs of the terminally ill. And so when people come to the end of their life, we have hospice programs today that give palliative care to allow the person to um, end their life with dignity as well as the pain managed. And this is this idea of a hospice. Well, a hospital is defined as an institution where the sick or injured are given medical care. And I mention these words because if we merge them together, we really get a good picture of what we're talking about as Christians being hospitable here. Because the the idea here is a description of, of what all of this entails. As believers, our churches and our homes should be a place of refuge for people who are weary as they travel through life, right? We have people who are going through life that are beat up and burdened and struggling. And, and they're looking for a place where they can find refuge and healing and God's touch, hospitality, where people just say, you, you matter and let me show kindness and care for you. And so as you look at your own life, I want you to ask yourself, what are you doing to show this characteristic of hospitality in your own life? What are ways that you uh, show hospitality to others? What do you do here at Wayside to make Wayside a church that is hospitable to others? Whether you know it or not, you show hospitality all the time. Uh, just yesterday, you showed hospitality as a congregation here at Wayside. Now, you don't know what I'm talking about because we didn't advertise this. But we had a marriage conference here yesterday at Wayside Chapel. This sanctuary had over 100 police officers and their spouses here, and our children's department uh, put on a great program for the kids of these officers. And so from 9 to 4 yesterday, we had a marriage conference here for law enforcement community. And you may be thinking, well, Roger, why didn't I hear about it? Well, I want you to think in terms, first of all, about the security uh, potential problems. If you advertised to the world that there was going to be a place where police officers and their spouses and kids were going to be gathered in a church, what kind of target would that have been for somebody wanting to create some newsworthy attack? And so that's one reason we didn't do it. The other is that as... You've heard me talk about before. I'm a former police officer. I know their world. And, you know, it's, it's a very hard world. If you're not aware of it, police officers have the highest divorce rate of any profession, higher than the military. And so these are families that are constantly under stress, and they have unique needs in what they face. And so our church was able to partner with an organization called Bless the Badge. It's a national organization that puts on these marriage conferences around the U.S., and we hosted it here. We had officers that came from Fort Worth, some from Beeville, and many from the local departments here, San Antonio Police, Bear County, and the surrounding municipalities. And we didn't call it a marriage conference because, you know, cops don't want to come to a marriage conference. So we called it tactical relationship training, <laughs> right? It's tactical relationship training. And so uh, that was taking place here. Uh, cops love tactical relationship training. And uh, we were able to minister to these families. And you as a church did that because it was through your gifts that allow us to have a building. Your staff uh, is who was serving these officers and their families. 
you saw a picture earlier of the Admiral's basketball team that is here. And they're named the Admirals, as you know. We have Dennis Robinson, the Admiral, and he gave permission for them to use his name Admiral as the Admiral's team. And so Dennis Robinson was here talking to the uh, players, you know, one day at Wayside. And, um, but you saw the picture where they're all staying. You know that we have two mission houses right outside the doors of our sanctuary over here on Ivywood. Two of our homes are set up and we furlough missionaries. Well, they've been staying there in the mission houses. And again, those are supported through your gifts. Uh, your financial gifts to the church allow us to purchase those homes, to run those homes, to have these missionary support and things. So you're showing hospitality. Uh, you do it in personal ways. Recently, we just had camp in the city here, Pine Cove's camp in the city. And many of you opened your homes and housed the counselors who came and put on a camp for 178 kids. And you had counselors staying in your home for a week. You housed them, you fed them, you gave them a, a place to retreat at the end of the day of full ministry and cared for them. And you demonstrate hospitality during the greeting time when you reach out and say hi to somebody. You do it when you meet somebody in the parking lot and say, can I take you over to the children's department or can I show you this or that? You know, it's that, that one-minute moment of you meet somebody and say, am I going to show kindness and hospitality to others? So this is an area that I know many of you are already doing many things in to show hospitality. But again, I want you to look at your own life and I want you to say, is there something more I can do? Is there a way I can grow in being hospitable? Now, sometimes what I hear from people is, well, Roger, I really can't show hospitality in my home because I don't have a big fancy house. I don't have real nice things like other people have. Uh, that's not what's required for hospitality. There was a woman by the name of Karen Maines, and she wrote a book called Open Heart, Open Home. And in her book, she describes the difference between hospitality and entertaining. And she says, entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home and my clever decorating, with my fine cooking. Hospitality seeks to minister, saying this home is a gift from my master. I use it as he desires. You see, hospitality aims to serve. Entertaining puts things before people. It says, as soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, my house cleaning done, then I will start inviting people. But hospitality puts people first. No furniture? Fine, we'll eat on the floor. The decorating may never get done. You come anyway. The house is a mess, but your friends come home with us. Entertaining subtly declares his home is mine. It's an expression of my personality. I want you to look, please, and admire. But hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to remind you that the Bible says we are stewards, managers of all that God has entrusted to us. Our home, our, our cars, the things that we have, they're not ours. They're tools that belong to the master. And they're tools to be used for his ministry, to reach out and love other people. From our places to our possessions, everything ultimately belongs to God. So as you look at what you've been entrusted with, from your time to your treasures, I want you to ask yourself, are you hospitable? Are you a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who says, this is God's and I want to use it for his glory. And it's not a, it doesn't identify, it doesn't, you know, it's not my identity in Christ. These are simply tools. And be willing to invite people over to your house, even if it's not all that you want it to be, even if you think it's a mess. 
just let people know that they're important and you care and you want to demonstrate the love of God to them. So as we close today, I want you, God, I want you to look at these things we've talked about today and I want you to ask yourself, how are you doing in showing God's love to others? From being hospitable to the other things that we've talked about today. I want you to consider these things. So as we go to God in prayer now, I want you just to ask God to help you in the areas where maybe you need to grow a little more in your walk with him. And then I'll close this in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. The Bible tells us that your word is a light unto our feet, a light unto our path. And as we've been looking at your word today, God, that that leads us in how we're to live, I pray that you would shine that light deeper into our hearts and our minds to reveal the things that are there, maybe some some places in our life that, that we've not yet fully given over to you, some things that we've not been living as we should. God, not because the way we live earns your favor or gives us a place in heaven. Your word is very clear to us that by grace through faith alone, we've been saved through faith in Jesus. And so as recipients of your grace, God, would you help us to be those who share that with others? Would we be willing to reach out in love to others, to show hospitality, to be those who are controlled not by anger or the things in the world, but instead by you, Holy Spirit. Would you be the one who leads and guides us and helps us to be your hands and feet to the world around us? Father, we thank you for your word that also shows us how much you love us and that you love us uh, as we are. Whether or not we ever serve in a formal position as a leader, you love us and you've called us to ministry to that priesthood of believers. So would you help us, God, to live in ways that reflect who you are, to be a light into the darkness. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ.